Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Hoops and Chill with Candace Evans. Today, I'm going to dive into the NBA Pick'em for tonight's matchups and tomorrow's matchups. And we're going to look into the current MVP odds, all according to Bet Online. I am also going to try and make sense of what we saw during Feast Week on the college side because, oh my God, what happened to the top 10? Also, I'll give my piece on the Atlanta Hawks and the Dallas Mavericks and even the Los Angeles Lakers, which kind of do every week. Before we touch any of that, though, I'm going to dive in to last week's headlines. The WNBA's most winningest head coach, Mike Thibault, is retiring after 20 years. After being hired as head coach and GM in December 2012, Tybalt led Washington, the Washington Mystics to eight playoff appearances and the WNBA championship in 2019. The 72-year-old has also coached the Connecticut Suns for 10 years prior to joining the Mystics and was named WNBA Coach of the Year three times in 2006, 2008, and 2013. His son, Eric Thibault, will be elevated to head coach after serving as Mike's assistant for the past 10 years. On November 26 of 2005, LeBron James recorded 38 points with six made threes. On November 26 of 2022, LeBron James recorded 39 points with seven made threes. Love them or hate them, that stat line, 17 years apart, is damn impressive. This might be the biggest news that I could ever give you guys. My GOAT, the best shooter of all time in women's basketball the best scorer of all time in women's basketball the greatest assassin we have ever seen take the WNBA court the myth the legend the white mamba as named by the black mamba himself Kobe Bean Bryant I'm talking about Diana Taurasi she is returning for her 19th season in the WNBA this is the best news that I've heard all year. And because of that, it is the best news you will hear all year. All jokes aside, Diana Taurasi, undisputed WNBA GOAT. What she's done over 18-year span, going into 19 years, leading in just about every statistical category you can lead in and maintaining greatness, she is my GOAT. I wish my goat would have retired two years ago. It is hard to see someone who is so great go through repeated injuries, go through moments where it looks like their body is not feeling it no more. And that's where DT is. But as long as DT wants to play, damn it, she can play. That's my view on it. I'm already hurt that we're having a first WNBA season of my basketball lifetime without Sue Bird coming up. So I don't know how, how I will be able to react to not having Diana Taurasi out there just would not be the same. Talk about not liking change. Kyrie Irving declared his teammate Utah Watanabe the best shooter in the world. Watanabe is currently leading the NBA in three-point percentage, shooting 39% from three. This is a bold statement, considering Steph Curry is still breathing. Clay Thompson is still breathing. Kevin Durant is still breathing, and he's also breathing the same locker room air <laughs> as Watanabe. But 
Watanabe, he is leading the league in three-point percentage, and it is fabulous for a star to hype up a role player to that magnitude. Gotta love Kyrie. Gordon Hayward is out indefinitely after suffering a left shoulder contusion in early November. All of Victor Wabanyama's games will be streamed free on the NBA app. The Indiana Fever won the number one draft pick, likely meaning South Carolina's Aaliyah Boston will be heading to the Fever come draft time. New Mexico women's basketball freshman Brooke Berry left the program this week because of gun violence concerns in Albuquerque. Her decision comes shortly after the men's basketball rivalry game against New Mexico State Aggies was postponed and eventually canceled because of a shooting incident involving a New Mexico State University player on University of New Mexico campus. 18 years ago yesterday, some of the ugliest first half basketball in the NBA was played. The New Jersey Nets and the Portland Trailblazers combined for a total of 55 points at the half on November 28, 2004. The halftime score was 25 to 30. The Portland Trailblazers eventually won the game 83 to 71. This was the record for the lowest points scored at halftime of an NBA game. Looking to up your shoe game this holiday season? Run over to Unapologetic Sports on Instagram for custom Air Force One and NBA sneaker designs. Doesn't matter your team or shoe size, Unapologetic has you covered to be a fan in the most unapologetic fashion. Again, that's unapologetic underscore, underscore sports on Instagram to build up your custom Air Force One collection this holiday season. The best fans are the ones who are unapologetic. Follow and shop Unapologetic Sports on Instagram at unapologetic underscore sports. So we're going to look into tonight's NBA Pick'ems. Again, how to play. All you have to do is answer questions on NBA games each day. Tune in to see how your pregame picks play out. Come back during live action to answer live questions because it'll get you more bonus points. Build up your points towards all awesome weekly prizes and the best part there is no purchase necessary so tonight is a rough night because the questions surround the Knicks Pacers 7 30 p.m eastern matchup the first question being who will be the first to score 15 points both of these teams can play some very ugly basketball at any point of the game. So to start the game it is hard to call I'm going to go with the Pacers on this one though but it will be close but I will take the Pacers first to 15. Which team will make more three-pointers, Pacers or Knicks? I'm taking the Knicks solely because Killian Hayes has just recently found his shooting stroke. And the way that his inconsistency is, he'll likely have a bomb of a game today. Jalen Brunson, always solid from three. Obi Toppin. He is bound to break out of his shooting slump. Same with R.J. Barrett. Which player will make more threes? Julius Randle or Alec Burks? I'm taking Alec Burks with the Pistons on this one. Julius Randle's three-point shot has never been consistent. And he does not take quality three-point shots. Dude takes the worst shot at the worst time possible. I'll take Alec Burks in this one. Going back west. Dallas Mavericks, Golden State Warriors, 7.30 p.m. Eastern on TNT. Which team will be the first 15? I'm taking the Golden State Warriors. They have been playing beautiful basketball. Klay Thompson is back in his shooting stroke. And their defense has actually shown up this year. 
for the first time in a long time. Which player will score more points, Stephen Curry or Luka Doncic? I'm taking Stephen this one. Luka has been on a tear. Luka has been an early MVP favorite, but at the end of the day, Steph shoots it better from three. Steph can score in a multiple multiple ways. And I know Luka is crafty on ball, but what Steph can do off ball will kill Dallas, especially the way their defense has been playing the past two weeks. I wouldn't be shocked if Steph goes for one of those crazy 45-plus games. And Luka is capable of doing the same, but for tonight, I am taking Steph to score more points. Which player will make more three-pointers, Andrew Wiggins or Tim Hardaway Jr.? I'm taking Andrew. Tim's shot has been gone. Don't know what happened. He is in a crazy shooting slump. It does not look like he's coming out of it anytime soon. The Warriors' defense has been phenomenal in the perimeter the past six, seven games. Andrew Wiggins has been shooting lights out from three. He has had multiple games this season where he has made five or more threes. And tonight might be another one of those nights because Dallas does not play defense. Keeping it out west, 10 p.m. Eastern on TNT, Los Angeles Clippers versus the Portland Trailblazers. Which team will hit 15 points first? I'm taking the Trailblazers. They haven't, they have lost four of their last five games. They are going to look to try to start strong and stay strong, knowing that they have a back-to-back. I expect them to come out swinging. Trailblazers first to score 15. Which team will have more steals? Trailblazers, they're younger. Young teams typically gamble more. And while gambling bites you in the butt often, you will come across with some steals. Which player will grab more rebounds? Ivaka Zubak or Jusuf Nurkic? Taking Zubak. Dude just came off of a 26-rebound game. and He said he told himself he is going to grab every rebound possible. I believe him because he already showed me once. The next question goes live at the start of the first quarter of the Dallas Mavericks Golden State Warrior game at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. And this question is a two-time multiplier. Tomorrow's action on NBA Pick'em starts out east at 7 p.m. Eastern with the Philadelphia 76ers, Cleveland Cavaliers. Which team will hit 15 points first? Taking the Cavaliers there. They're young. Donovan Mitchell, Darius Garland, they get up and down. Wouldn't be shocked if they jump out early. Up next, we have the Atlanta Hawks versus the Orlando Magic, which team will make more three-pointers. I'm actually taking the Magic in this one. Boa Boa, Franz Wagner, and crew, they've actually been shooting the ball very well for three, and they've been playing much better team basketball as of late. First to 15, Boston Celtics, Miami Heat at 7.30 Eastern. Taking the Celtics, they have been playing like the best team in the NBA from start to finish. They are on the same page offensively and have looked to take another step defensively, which is shocking because they were phenomenal late last year defensively. 7.30 Eastern, we have the Milwaukee Bucks taking on the New York Knicks. Which team will have more steals? I'm going with the Bucks. They've been one of the best defensive teams in the NBA, and the Knicks have been kind of a struggle on offense. So Bucks have more steals. Which team will grab more rebounds? Toronto Raptors, New Orleans Pelicans at 8 p.m. Eastern. Going with the Raptors. They are big all around. Which team will be the first 15? San Antonio Spurs, OKC Thunder, 8 p.m. Eastern. I'm taking the Thunder. 
Shea Gilders Alexander has been looking like one of the best shooting guards in the NBA. And I'm not saying young shooting guards. I'm just saying shooting guards, period. Which player will grab more rebounds? Memphis Grizzlies, Minnesota Timberwolves, 8 p.m. Eastern. Steven Adams, Rudy Gobert. I'm going with Rudy Gobert on this one. Which team will make more three-pointers? Houston Rockets, Denver Nuggets. Whew, that's a tough one. The Nuggets take the Nuggets have skill. The Rockets have youth and spunk. The Rockets take a lot of ill-advised shots, but a broke clock is is right twice a day. I'm actually going with the Rockets on this one. Which player will score more points? DeMar DeRozan, Devin Booker, and the Bulls Suns matchup at 9 p.m. Eastern. Going with Devin Booker. I think because people don't like the Suns because they're like the most annoying team in the NBA right now. Devin Booker's not getting his due. When we're talking about early MVP favorites, Booker's name is not coming up, even though he is their leading scorer. He has been very solid on defense. And he has put them over the hump in each close game of this year. And the Phoenix Suns have the best record in the Western Conference. Yet Devin Booker's name has not come up in any MVP talks. It's really because we don't like the Suns. And I feel it. They are annoying. Devin Booker score more points. Which team will make more free throws? Clippers, Jazz. Clippers, Jazz matchup, 930. My fault. Forgive me. 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Going with the Jazz. They've been playing phenomenal basketball. They've been scoring it at all levels. And they've been getting to the line. The Clippers take a lot of elevated shots and sometimes get jump shot happy. Which player will make more three-pointers? Buddy Hill, Kevin Herter, Pacers, Kings, 10 p.m. Eastern. Going with Kevin Herter, Buddy Hill has been cold as of late. Portland Trailblazers, Los Angeles Lakers, 10.30 p.m. Eastern. Will Shaden Sharp score more than eight points? Yes, it's the Lakers. They have not been defending well. Tomorrow's next question goes live at the start of quarter one of the Wizards-Nets game at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. And again, that point will be worth double. So the last game of the Tuesday NBA Pick'em was the Los Angeles Lakers, Portland Trailblazers. The Trailblazers will be on the second end of a back-to-back when they come across the Lakers. But the Lakers are coming off of a very tough loss. Last night, the Lakers choked off a 17-point lead to the Indiana Pacers at home. I could sit here and do a deep dive into all the storylines, let my bias show, but I won't do that. There are some key factors that affect every Lakers game. The obvious and the first one is Russell Westbrook. Now, I have been on record saying that he has played much better and has not been as detrimental to the Lakers as he was earlier in the season and all of last season. He is shooting the ball better, his decision-making is better, and he's actually doing the best job of getting Anthony Davis involved. And the Lakers are at their best when AD is the dude on offense. But Russell did have key turnovers in the fourth quarter that killed the Lakers last night. A turnover late in the game is always tough, but it's even worse when it comes from your point guard. And to make it worse for Russell, he was getting eight up on the defensive end. Two things can be true. Russell played well. He wasn't the Achilles heel of the Lakers, but he also played a role in the collapse. 
The next factor that is always prevalent in Lakers losses is the lack of shooting. This one is not hard. The roster is not that good. You look around and you have to wonder who's your shot makers. Who are the guys you can kick it out to? And if they have an inch of space, nine times out of 10, they're going to knock down the jump shot. Is it Lonnie Walker? No. Troy Brown? Nope. Austin Reeves? Perhaps. Austin has shown that he can maybe go into that role full time. Maybe Dennis Schroeder. He's working himself back. He might be able to be one of those guys, but I don't really see him as a sniper from three. Kendrick Nunn was supposed to be that guy, but he's been kind of under underwhelming, real up and down. It's not supposed to be Russ. Shouldn't have to be AD or Braun. So who is it? It's no one. They don't have it. Rob Palinka didn't do his part in filling the star's needs, and it has shown all season. But the biggest trend that no one wants to talk about is the elephant-sized Kareem chase we have going on. LeBron James is chasing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's record, and he has been uncharacteristically shot hunting this season. And in doing so, not only has he had moments where he's freezing Anthony Davis out, and Anthony Davis has clearly been unstoppable when he's getting touches in the paint, LeBron has also shot the Lakers out of games. In 36 minutes, he had 21 points. On paper, that's not bad, especially at his age. But then you have to look deeper into it. He was 8 of 22 from the field. Okay, 21 shots, 21 points on 22 shots. Yeah. He shot 10 three-pointers and only made three of them. That's 30% from three. Knowing that the three-point game ain't his game. So why is he shooting 10 threes? Okay, whatever. He only got to the three the free throw line three times. Is that fully on him? Meh. Some calls could have went his way, but there are sometimes he is not getting fouled. He just can't beat his man off the dribble anymore. The person is in front of him now. To make matters worse, Anthony Davis only shot the ball 15 times. And only two times in the fourth quarter. Now that's problematic. AD, of not, AD was 9 of 15 from the field, leading the Lakers in scoring with 25 points. He had the best plus minus of the starting lineup. Another tidbit to just add, now that I'm looking at the stat sheet, the bench had a better plus minus than the starters. Russell Westbrook, Austin Reeves, Kendrick Nunn, Winyan Gabriel, and Thomas Bryant had a better plus minus. And now that I think about it, when they were in, they were up 17. It was once the starters came back that the Pacers made that run. But we're going to break down the X's and O's of how the Lakers managed to choke off a 17-point lead in fourth quarter in our first installment of Candy's Film Room. Okay, we're going to just hop right into the middle of the second quarter. The Lakers took a two-point lead with AD and Russell Westbrook playing a two-man game. High pick and roll with Russ waiting for AD to not only roll, but to seal his man. AD is at his best when he's getting touches down low. Roy Russ has exploited that. And he deserves more credit for doing so. The Lakers, however, gave up a lot of open looks off of brush screens. A simple switch is all that's needed to defend this kind of to defend this kind of action, but for some reason the switches weren't coming. Lucky for the Lakers, Buddy Hill was cold most of the night, but Tyrese Halliburton wasn't. To end the second quarter, Russ and AD continued their two-man game. The Lakers went with their horn set. Instead of having LeBron on ball, Russ was on ball. 
LeBron was at was on one elbow, AD was on the opposite elbow. Russ came off of LeBron. AD set a screen for LeBron to flare to the opposite wing, and then AD dives to the rim. Russ found AD on the for an easy dunk off the dive. Beautiful basketball. That's how the Lakers should always operate. AD should be the focal point every time down whenever he is in the game. Russ was fighting AD. Don't know why they didn't stick with this the entire game. The third quarter could have been the time for the Lakers to really take off. But for some reason, their starting unit with Dennis Schroeder and Lonnie Walker couldn't contain the Pacer guards. Tyrese Halliburton was getting to getting line drive layups, just straight layup lines without really using a screen. Yes, Miles Turner was coming up, but he wasn't even making contact with the Laker defenders. Halliburton wasn't even using the screen fully. There was no contact made. Schroeder and Walker were just getting beat, and they have to be better considering their job is supposed to just really be defense since they're not knockdown shooters. To make matters worse for the Lakers, they were actually moving the ball well, but they had guys pass up open shots to drive into who knows where without anyone to actually kick it out to. Now, this is actually twofold sometimes because the idea to pass up a good shot for a great shot is usually good, but at times it is overused. Sometimes the three-point shot is the great shot. If you're wide open and you are a guard and you are in the NBA, you got to be able to hit that shot. The defense has collapsed. The paint is likely clogged. You have to hit open jump shots. The Lakers had a play where Troy Brown drove the ball in. Two defenders come. So he kicks it baseline to Russell Westbrook. Russell skips it over to Kendrick Nunn, who is wide open. Nunn is a shooter. This is supposed to, this is great basketball. This is when you pull the three. Instead, Kendrick Nunn up fakes and drives it into three people with no one in the opposite corner. So he had no real kick out. Good ball movement turns into a turnover. The play of the game, and I know this is going to sound crazy because the game ended with a lot of moments that could have been play of the game. But the play of the game for me started with Smith's block on Troy Brown at the 8-minute, 16-second mark of the fourth quarter. The Lakers were just up 17. The Pacers were on a run, now only down 12. Troy Brown had what looked like an easy layup, but he Cadillaced in instead of driving hard and going up strong. And he ended up getting his shot blocked by Jalen Smith. The Pacers pushed the ball and got a layup, cutting it to 10. From there, it was a ball game, and the Lakers didn't recover. The Lakers were up six with about three minutes left to play. They hit a three, putting it to nine, which is usually a good sign. Somehow, someway, Tyrese Halliburton pushes the ball down their throat and pitches it back to Andrew Nimbart, who then kicks it to Miles Turner, wide open on the wing. Turner hits the three. In a matter of, what, five seconds? A made basket turned into a transition three. But okay, we're just we're going to get past that. Lakers ball, six-point game, two minutes, 56 seconds left in the game. The Pacers are giving a semi-full-court press, but it's not even a hard press. For some reason, Dennis Schroeder gives the ball to the center, Anthony Davis. AD gets the ball to Troy Brown, who gets his pocket picked by Nimbart, Nimbart saves the ball, gives it to Halliburton. Halliburton pushes the ball up and gets it to Buddy Hill on the wing. 
He'll drive by AD and gets fouled hard, goes to the free throw line, makes both. Now you have a four-point game. Two minutes, 35 seconds left in the game. Okay, don't panic. You have Anthony Davis, LeBron James, and Russell Westbrook. Heck, I'll add Dennis Schroeder to that. You have vets. You should be fine. Wrong. LeBron gets the ball. Iso, Iso runs the clock, runs the clock, runs the clock, shoots up a brick. Pacers go down. They get a layup. Two-point game. Okay. You, The vets are going to come through now. Still wrong. Russ shoots up a brick. The Lakers get an offensive rebound. Russ turns the ball over. Pacers ball. 43 seconds left. Down. 111-113. Halliburton uses a high screen from Miles Turner and gets an easy layup. Help side did not come aggressive enough. Now we have a tight game. The Lakers still elect not to go to AD on the next play. So, of course, they go with LeBron. He screens Russell and gets a switch onto Buddy Hill, gets the ball. Now, while I have been saying that LeBron can't be known off the dribble, when I saw in real time that Buddy Hill was the one switched on to LeBron, I was like, oh, he's going to score because Hill plays no defense. And that is exactly what happened. LeBron gets an easy baseline drive, makes a layup. Lakers up two with 20 seconds left in the game. Here's how chaotic these Lakers have been this season. Communication is key in late game situation. The Lakers' last defensive set is right in front of their bench. Ball is side out of bounds. Turner is on the strong side block. Nimbard is on strong side elbow. Matherin, strong side slot. Heel, opposite slot. Halliburton taken out. Nimbard cuts opposite ring. Matherin curls. Miles Turner sets the screen for him. And then Heel follows right off of Malburn's heels off of the same Miles Turner screen. Miles Turner pops out to the top of the key. He is wide open. They kick it to Miles Turner, wide open at the top of the key. 8.5 seconds left. He shoots the ball up, and it's a brick. But the Lakers don't grab the rebound. Instead, it's tipped out to Halliburton, who dribbles around looking for someone to tell anyone. He throws a skip pass, a skip pass, a little bit inside of the wing throws a skip pass to the opposite wing LeBron was in help side and if he was in the proper position he could have picked the pass off but he wasn't he was too deep pass gets through Andrew Nimbar gets the ball with one second shoots it up for three it goes in Pacers win 116 to 115 The Lakers fall to 7-12 and 12 on the season, 5-6 and six at home. The Pacers improve to 12-8 and eight on the season. A game like that is a tough pill to swallow because you played very good basketball but showed you don't know how to win close games. It's the little things in late-game situations. And every late-game situation this season, the Lakers have failed to do those little things. Tomorrow, they have the Portland Trailblazers, and Portland's going to be on the second end of a back-to-back. But the way Portland's been playing, they're going to try to get their groove back after starting off the season strong. 
the Lakers will have to do better at containing guards and getting AD involved if they hope to get back in the win column. We're going to jump over to NCAA men's basketball. Now, we're ta- I just mentioned how it's a tough pill for the Lakers. I am had a tough pill to swallow this weekend. I am a huge North Carolina Tar Heels fanatic. This year, I was nervous because to start the season, we were ranked number one overall. Last season, we made it to the championship game where we might have actually won the, the entire thing if our best player didn't injure his ankle early. And even with an injury, we were two possessions away from winning it all. So in theory, most teams who make it that far, who have just about everyone important coming back, in theory, they're supposed to be very good. But that's not how basketball works, especially college basketball. March Madness isn't made for the best team to be in the championship. It's not even made for the best team to win the championship. March Madness is made for madness. It's whoever is hot, whoever is healthy, whoever has luck on their side, that particular day, my Tar Heels had a lot of luck. We had a lot of health throughout that run. We peaked at the right time. If it was a best of seven type deal or even a best of five type deal, we don't even get past the round of 32, if I'm being honest. It's similar to how UCLA's men's basketball looked the year before. Their season was a mess. They were up and down, inconsistent, losing games to teams they weren't supposed to, barely made the March Madness tournament. But they made it in, and they got to the Final Four, even though every game was close. They had a lot of games they should have lost in that run. But they made it to the Final Four, and they gave what might be one of the best Final Four games all time. So the following year, with practically everyone important on that team coming back, you just assume they're going to be good. Wrong. They were. They are who they were for the whole resume. That includes the bulk of the regular season. The bulk of the regular season, they were whatever team. They just peaked in March Madness. That is how my Tar Heels were last season. We didn't have the best season. We were very inconsistent. There were times where it felt like we didn't have enough firepower and we didn't have an identity. But we peaked at the right time, so who cares? Everyone remembers the bottom part of that resume, what you do in March. They don't remember everything else on the resume, just the bottom. So my Tar Heels started off the year ranked number one overall. And we had so many close calls leading up to Feast Week with teams we were supposed to blow. And then we came across a good Iowa State team, and they humbled us. And then we came across an Alabama team who was just as athletic as us, but not the brightest teams when it comes to basketball IQ. And we let that game slip as well. For some reason... And I must say this while also saying I adore Coach Huber Davis. I'm. This is not me saying fire Huber Davis. I adore him. I respect him. Shout out to the first black head coach for a major program at UNC. But for some reason, Huber Davis decided to bench our best player, Armando Baycott. He did so in the final two minutes of regulation, knowing Alabama couldn't stop Baycott down low. And he wasn't a defensive liability. And before that, the team froze him out. Whenever he got the ball, he was 
feasting. He was even feasting when he wasn't getting the ball, just getting it off of offensive rebounds. The final possession of regulation should have been a play where Hubert Davis subbed in Armando Baycott, posted him up, and had the inbound pass go to Baycott down low. Now, whether he makes it, whether he gets fouled, whether the refs call it, whatever happens, happens. But it happens through our best player. That is how late-game situations should work. But that's not what happened. So instead, we get a long three. And then we go into an overtime. In overtime, Armando Baycott still didn't get subbed in. Wow, he's still on the bench. Okay. We had moments where it looked like we could pull away. Then we had moments where Alabama came back and they forced a second overtime. Then that repeated into a third overtime. And then that repeated into a fourth overtime. And the team looked gassed and still no sub. Best player, arguably on the court. So I guess it wasn't best player on the court. He's just best player in the gym who happened to not be on the court. Not subbed in. And I'm trying to make the math math, but the math ain't mathing. And it's getting on my last nerves because Hubert, why ya? When we went into screen and roll with RJ Davis and Armando Baycott, we got every shot we wanted because Baycott demands two bodies. And then instead of going with RJ Davis and Baycock and Baycott and pick and roll, we saw times where he had Caleb Love going for pick and rolls. And I get it. Caleb can score, he can shoot it. But he is not a talented passer, and decision-making is not his strong suit. So instead, have the pick and roll be the same side that Caleb's on and let him just spot up to catch and shoot. Armando does a very good job of kicking it out of double teams. And RJ, I like to think since he was such a high recruit that as a point guard, he can make the proper read. And this isn't me piling on Caleb Love because, yes, Caleb Love finished with 32, 30 points, but he finished with over 32 shot attempts. He's not a high quality passer, so he wasn't able to hit the pocket pass on any pick and rolls. And at sometimes he wasn't even looking for it. So now my Tar Heels are on a two game losing streak, and we dropped tremendously in the AP top 25. But honestly, I'm, I never care about the AP top 25 because at the end of the day, it's not how you start, it's what you finish with. No one cares about the entirety of the resume. It's just that bottom part. What do you do in March? But what really killed me with that game, the past two games, and the early start to this season, is the lack of awareness from a team who has been regarded as one of the best teams in college basketball. That lack of awareness from the coaching staff on down to the players was frustrating and rather disappointing. What wasn't frustrating for me to watch was Duke getting smacked by Purdue. Look, I hate Duke. I'm a North Carolina fan. I'm not even going to try to hide it. Hide it. My soul smiled when my Tar Heels beat Duke on Coach K's night and then sent them home in the Final Four. So with my Tar Heels losing, I needed... So with my Tar Heels losing, my body needed Duke to lose. And thankfully, Purdue gave me what I needed. Duke started the game off one for four from the free throw line. Even though Purdue was turning the ball over, seems like every possession, Duke couldn't take advantage of that. 
Purdue's Zach Eady looked phenomenal. He didn't get in foul trouble. He was demanding double teams and he was kicking it out at the right time, drop stepping with ease, hitting hook shots like Prime Shaq. Dude looked great. Purdue beat Duke by 20 points after being Gonzaga by 18. They're the second team to have back-to-back 18-plus victories over top 10 opponents since UCLA in 1968. Purdue looks like a well-oiled machine right now because their guards are playing within the offense. And as a team, they're hustling on both ends. Usually when you hear hustle, you only think of defense. Defense is 100% effort. But offense is only about 60% effort. And the effort that we're speaking about on offense isn't the will to score. It's cutting hard, getting to your screens, setting hard screens, popping out hard, moving with a purpose, moving intentionally. That effort makes an offense go from good to great. And that is what Purdue is giving us. They are playing on a string on both ends. Duke is big and they have a lot of skill but they're missing that will to win. You see teams who play with urgency at all times of the game, and then they show you that they can put it in a different gear and just outclass you. Duke used to be one of those teams. They were one of those teams that's like, oh man, this is high-level basketball. And then next thing you know it, they take it to a different level you didn't even know existed. Right now, they don't have that. They don't have that second gear. They're not outclassing people. They are not Duke that we knew of with Coach K three years ago because even these past Duke teams in the last three years of his tenure didn't really have that gear Purdue also smacked Gonzaga who was another team ranked very high to start the year Gonzaga has become one of the most hated teams in America which is normal when you're consistently winning Duke North Carolina Villanova the Michigan's They all have their fair share of haters because they're always good. What makes Gonzaga different from those teams is that they are still technically a mid-major. They aren't a school that has recruiting classes filled with five stars. Up until 2021, they had never even landed a five-star, and four stars came rare. They have had a total of three five-stars join the program in the history of of the program. Compare that to Duke, who on average has three five-stars per recruiting class. They don't have the same athletic budget as a BCS, yet year in, year out, they're always one of the best teams in college basketball. Therefore, they will always be one of the most hated teams in college basketball. This includes getting the fraud tag thrown at them constantly. Because again, as a mid-major, they play against other mid-majors when conference play rolls around. I will say the West Coast Conference is one of, if not, one, I'll say one of, because the Atlantic 10, they're, some people say they're a mid-major. I don't consider them a mid-major conference, but whatever. So I'll say the West Coast Conference is one of the best mid-major conferences in the country. They consistently send two teams to the March Madness tournament, usually it being Gonzaga and BYU. They've had some years where they sent three teams. St. Mary's be, usually being the other. But at the end of the day, is still not the comp- the same competition that you'll see in the Big Ten or the Big 12 on a nightly basis. Gonzaga usually tries to make up for it by playing a heated out-of-conference schedule that extends into conference play. Every year, they're in the best tournaments possible. They accept home-and-homes with whoever is willing to play them out of the other BCSs. But the fraud tag 
will always be there because they're a mid-major. Usually, I brush off the tag because they're usually they're usually a damn good team that I could see every year making a deep run. This year, I, I'm not too sure that this is an Elite Eight team. They have a stud in Drew Timmy. Drew Timmy is phenomenal. He is putting up numbers and a resume that is up there with some of the best to play college basketball. Dude is a beast. It's not even a question. But the guards around him have been very inconsistent offensively, and they haven't had the same defensive gear as past Gonzaga teams. They have shown on multiple occasions that they can't keep opposing guards out of the paint and they can't control the tempo of a game. In both of their losses, they let the opposing guard dictate the pace of the game. Against Texas, they allowed Trey Hunter to hit five threes, while Texas as a team shot 43% from three, with 47% of those shots being wide open. That's problematic, and that's unlike Gonzaga. Against Purdue, they allowed Brandon Smith to slow the pace down and dissect their defense. He was finding shooters, setting up Zach Eady, and running the clock down in the second half without any opposition. They were never able to speed him up or even get the ball out of his hands. In past years, Gonzaga guards have been menacing on defense, forcing teams to play their tempo. And on the offensive side, they were always organized and they were shot makers. This year, they don't have a floor general who's getting them into their sets when the other team is rolling and they aren't defending the perimeter at a high level. Their head coach, Mark Few, phenomenal. Love the guy, met the guy, one of my favorite people. He will likely have them together by January. But right now, as it stands, they don't look like the Gonzaga teams that we've grown accustomed to. And I can wholeheartedly say that, oh yeah, this is a team that's definitely making it to the Elite Eight. Can't say it. Moving on to the women's side, LSU women's basketball is currently ranked higher than Baylor women's basketball. If you don't know, Former Baylor legend Kim Mulkey left Baylor to become the head coach for LSU. Baylor is ranked 21st overall, while LSU is ranked 11th. That would have been unheard of during the Kim Mulkey era at Baylor. However, it's looking like it's going to be the norm during the Kim Mulkey era at LSU. Her Tigers have looked great. Angel Reese is making a case for AP Player of the Year, currently averaging 23 points and leading the nation in rebounds with 15 a game. Their point guard, Alexis Morris, has been a dog on defense and explosive on offense. That one-two punch may very well be the best in college basketball. But we don't know if they're the best duo in college basketball because they've been playing against church league competition to open the season. They haven't played a a ranked opponent yet and haven't played any BCS schools yet. This isn't saying that Moki is dodging smoke. In the month of December, they are set to play eight ranked opponents outside of their conference. And then in conference, they will have to go through Georgia, Kentucky, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Texas A&M, Tennessee, and South Carolina. That is a gauntlet. LSU is going to have their fair share of heat. That's without question. But it's hard to gauge just how good they are early because they haven't played anyone yet. And I know everyone's so quick to just look at the highlights and look at the stat sheet and say oh my god Angel Reese is the best player in the country but can we really say that she is better than Haley Jones AZ Fudd Aaliyah Boston without her playing Haley Jones AZ Fudd and Aaliyah Boston because those three they've played they've played heat AZ Fudd just took down arguably the best guard in college basketball and Caitlin Clark. 
Aaliyah Boston, Haley Jones, and I'll throw Cameron Brink in there. They went head up and gave us an overtime thriller. LSU has given us blowouts against teams. I don't even know where the hell they're from. But, again, they have a gauntlet to go through in conference play, and they have a hell of a out-of-conference schedule that starts in December. So we'll see. What block raised you? Whether you grew up in the streets of Crenshaw or on the drives of Rodeo, Avenues and Boulevards has you covered on all of your street style needs. Go to avsandboulevards.com to shop streetwear styles by Tennessee State alumni Andre Edwards. That's avs, A-V-E-S, in the letter N, Boulevard, that's B-L-V-D-S, dot com to get your streetwear style. Kind of still over there. Oh, you know what? Dumbest marketing know what? move ever. I'm out. What? That's it. Seriously. That's Seriously. Mean. You got to read the room. Wrong move, wrong time. What are you upset about? Yeah. Why? Well, what yeah. do you think? The one air fresher from the NBA is the team that beats us in the NBA conference finals. Got to know that oh, that could, that could backfire. Oh, could be yeah, I could be, but I'm not. That is a clip of Mark Cuban on the show Shark Tank blasting a team's pitch because they used a Golden State Warriors air freshener. Knowing the Warriors had just beaten his Dallas Mavericks in the conference finals. Clearly, Cuban took the loss personally and wants better for his Mavs. The Dallas Mavericks started the year off strong but are currently on a four-game losing streak and have lost seven of their last ten games. Their star, Luka Doncic, has been great, but the numbers have not been translating to wins. He's been getting some heat for his style of play. Their second-year head coach has also been getting some heat for his rotations and his hesitancy to play Christian Woods. Their GM, Nico Harrison, has been taking some heat for not building a stronger roster. But who's really to blame in all of this? For me, I see truth in each complaint. Luka can out. Luca can at times shoot them out of games, not because he's shooting the ball too much, because he's shooting poor shots. There are times when Luca can't be stopped going to the rim, and he'll stop himself and settle for long step back threes. He'll hit some, he'll brick a lot, wasting possessions. It also doesn't help that his teammates aren't driving or cutting often, usually just standing around the perimeter waiting for Luca to do something. Whether or not that's an offensive design, I don't know. If it is, kid has to do better. If it's not, kid has to do better and tell his guys to move. But I won't sit here and say Luca freezes his teammates out, which is something Isaiah Thomas said on the other night's broadcast. Luca finds his teammates with adequate time on the shot clock. Tim Hardaway Jr. and Reggie Bullock are just bricking right now. It's not because they're getting the ball with two seconds left on the shot clock. It's not because they're getting bad passes. It's not because they're not getting enough looks. They aren't, they are going through a shooting slump. It happens. The greatest shooters have shooting slumps. You got to get through it. That is not on anyone else. Shooters have slumps. And when it happens, as a coach, you should adjust. This brings me to Jason Kidd. He has been rolling with Hardaway over Christian Woods, even though Woods has been the better player this year. He is shooting better from three. He gives them an inside presence on defense and has been very solid in switches on defense. The Mavs are a plus seven when Woods is on the floor with Doncic, while they are a minus 11 with Doncic and Bullock and a minus 14 with Doncic and Hardaway, 
as a team, they are minus 21 without Doncic on the floor. But Woods isn't going to make this team a true contender. This brings me to Nico Harrison. When you look at the other contenders, there are always five constants. One, a superstar. Two, another star. Not quite super, but still a star. Three, an all-defense caliber wing. Four, a quality backup point guard. Five, shooting on the perimeter. The Mavs have the superstar. Arguably one of the best in the world. They have shooting on the perimeter. But I don't see another star. I don't see another star. Woods is good. Spencer Dinwiddie is good. But they aren't stars. I love Dorian Finney-Smith, but I'm not sure he's a top-tier defender. So they don't have two or three. Okay, let's look at the backup PG. Oh, wait. He left. Is Spencer Dinwiddie the backup PG now? Not sure. Kind of shaky. So right now, all I see is one, the superstar, five, shooting. That's not winning a championship. And honestly, it isn't even deserving of getting out the first round. Expecting Luka Doncic to put on a cape and be Superman isn't fair to him, the team, or the fans. Nico Harrison got to figure it out by January or he's looking at a very tough summer. The Atlanta Hawks went viral this weekend for DeJounte Murray and Trey Young showboating in their loss to the Houston Rockets. It started with Murray hitting a three, then tapping his defender on the head. He then hit Trey for a three, and they both ran off with their arms flapping. They both then got into a small scuffle, Trey pushing people and calling them soft, while DeJounte did the too small gesture. And then they lost the game. There are those guys and girls that everyone wonders why they're single. You know, you know they're really good. They're a really good looking person who has a cool job and seems to be pretty normal. And you can't figure out why they can't stay in a relationship. So you go in, you try to kick it with them. And once you're in, you realize they have a screw loose. The hot guy that believes 5G gave everyone COVID. The pretty girl who thinks you need a passport to go to Hawaii. You end up finding out quickly why they are alone. That's DeJounte Murray. When he was with the Spurs, everyone was feeling bad for him because he had all this talent but didn't have a squad to support him. The rumors of him being a head case at Washington was put to rest because people started to think that he was being stereotyped because he was so good in San Antonio. He was on best behavior. Greg Popovich always gets teased for running the Spurs like a cult, but man, some people need to be told how to think and how to act because now that we can see who DeJounte Murray really is, oh my God, how did Popovich deal with it? Dude is mad corny. He's going to tap the wrong person on the head and get popped. That stuff ain't cool. And you especially can't lose the game behaving like that. Corny vibes all around. Corny vibes all around with that one. Another topic that went viral over the weekend was AZ Fudd, the UConn guard. She is currently averaging 29 points against top 10 teams this season, dropping 24 against number nine, Iowa, on Sunday. The trainer of just about every NBA star, Chris Brickley, declared her the best player in women's college basketball on Instagram. And South Carolina fans were pissed. It's worth noting that Brickley trained Fudd, so he might be a little biased. But it's also worth noting she is the only player to currently average 25 or more against top 10 opponents this year. Of the top five teams in the nation, 
the Huskies have the least amount of firepower on paper with their best player, Paige Beckers, and their best post, Ice Brady, out for the season, and their major transfer, Dorka Juhas, currently out. Fudd is carrying a heavier load than the other top players in the game. Does that mean she's better than Angel Reese, Haley Jones, and Aaliyah Boston? Not necessarily. Has she played more heat and shined? Definitely. We're going to look at the world according to B.O., that is bet online. This week, we're looking at MVP odds. Right now, Jason Tatum leads the pack as the early MVP favorite at plus 275. Luka Doncic is on his tail at plus 300. Giannis Antetokounmpo is up next tied at plus 300. There is a large drop to fourth with Steph Curry sitting at plus 800. Joel Embiid rounds out the top five at plus 1200. Jason Tatum deserves to be where he is. The Celtics have started the year off strong on both ends. They have been the best team in the game, and a lot of that is behind Tatum's play. Does that mean he's going to win it? No. The only thing consistent with Jason Tatum is his inconsistency. He is one of those guys prone to have cold cold stretches throughout the season at the worst time possible. He doesn't maintain his greatness like Luka, Steph, and Giannis. So the Celtics usually get caught in the standings, and he's never seems to keep hold of those MVP campaigns. Hell, if he was halfway consistent, the Celtics would have won the finals. Luka's team isn't good enough for him to be in the MVP combo. And I know it's an individual award, but team record always comes into play. The Mavs had a solid record last year, but are looking worse than last year's squad. If they are a sixth seed or lower, he won't have a shot at MVP. If they are a fifth seed or higher, hand them the award and then some because this roster should not have that much success especially in the western conference Giannis and Steph are most likely are the most likely candidates to be deserving of the award both have solid rosters have both are consistently the best player on the floor when it matters most and they're going to be contenders for the title when April rolls around the only thing that may hurt them is voter fatigue they both have two MVPs and a finals MVP Their greatness is expected and honestly taken for granted at this point. However, I expect for them to be higher in the convo than Jason Tatum come voting time. The final candidate who isn't really a candidate is Joel Embiid. The Sixers have been underwhelming this season, a large part due to injuries, but underwhelming nonetheless. They aren't going to have a record that typically goes to winning MVP, and Joel hasn't put up monster numbers to make noise enough to beat out those stars I just named. These numbers change often, so we'll be back to look at who's in and who's out next month. Feast week was an exciting time for NCAA college basketball on the men and women's side. We saw upsets, buzzer beaters, and quadruple overtimes. We also saw a tournament that showed the disregard for women's college basketball. The Las Vegas Invitational had a slew of BCS women's basketball teams, including fifth-ranked Indiana. Teams were told it would be an Athletes Unlimited setup. It ended up being the Athletes Unlimited court, and that's it. No towels were provided, and teams were advised to bring hand towels from their rooms. No signage of the tournament was up. Since there was only one court at the Mirage, teams had shoot-arounds at a middle school gym. The shot clock had to be reset multiple times because it kept getting unplugged. Fans who came reported there being only a few folding chairs and some having to search around to find a voting chair of their own. 
The Las Vegas Aces just won a WNBA title and had sellouts during the playoff run. There are women's basketball fans in Las Vegas who likely would have shown up if, one, they had known about it, and two, if the conditions were suited better for a fan experience. There wasn't a medical staff on site, so when, when an Auburn player went down, appearing to be unconscious, it took over 40 minutes for paramedics to arrive. The awful conditions have gone viral, and it is unlikely to happen again. Well, at least at that tournament. But why did it happen in the first place? Multiple sources list Bryce McKay as the organizer. So who's Bryce McKay? Let's look at it. McKay currently coaches an AAU basketball team in Ohio. McKay has been a prominent name in women's basketball for a while, especially in Ohio, where he was previously an assistant with Xavier and then moved on to be an assistant with Maryland. His stint at Maryland was short-lived as he resigned after he was accused of sexually abusing a player he coached at Xavier. Later, a second player he coached at Maryland made similar accusations. In a bench trial, the second player was not allowed to testify. And the judge claimed that while the player objected to being touched by McKay, she didn't object enough. I repeat, she didn't object enough to being touched meaning that she should have done no more than just saying no. Bad playing conditions aside, why would universities, responsible for the well-being of these student-athletes, schedule tournaments through an organizer with a history that calls into question the safety of collegiate women's athletes? Do athletic directors research the people in events at all? At the end of the day, it comes back to the notion that women should be grateful to have crumbs which is disgusting and downright wrong. There is a fan base for women's basketball and women's athletics in general. It is up to companies and organizers to see this and make the proper investment. That is all I have for you today. I will be back for another episode of Hoops and Chill this Thursday. Until then, and always, be safe and make good bets.